Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Do progressive Christians have doctrinal alignment on certain issues? What unites them? Today, my guest and I are going to talk about the Ten Commandments of progressive Christianity. Stay tuned. My guest today is Dr. Michael Kruger, President and Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary there at the Charlotte campus. Uh, He's the past president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and it's a real honor to have him on the show today because his areas of research are so relevant to the work that I'm trying to do in identifying historic Christianity, and also his work played a big role in answering a lot of the doubts I had when I was in a crisis of faith. So he specializes in the development of the New Testament canon, which this is a question I get so commonly through the website, is how do we know that the books of the New Testament we have are the right ones? How did we get those books? And so if that's your question, definitely check out Dr. Kruger's work on that topic. He also specializes in the Gospels, in Christian origins, development of early Christianity, particularly in the second century. And again, he's just written a great book on that. I read it a few months ago. It's phenomenal. He researches the apocryphal Gospels and the transmission of the Jesus tradition. And so in addition to writing several books on these topics, he blogs regularly at michaeljkruger.com. But his latest book is called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, which is out now. So Dr. Kruger, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. Happy to be with you and look forward to our conversation. Well, I, I especially appreciate the work you've done with answering progressive Christianity, because before I had even heard that phrase, before I even knew that it was a thing, your books on the canon and on early Christianity in particular played a huge role in the reconstruction of my faith after I'd gone through a time of pretty profound doubt and even deconstruction, although I didn't know that it was called that at the time. And so, yeah, and so the context that that all happened in was a, a church that would later go on to identify itself as a progressive Christian community. And so I watched so many of my friends go down this path and essentially deconvert from historic Christianity. And so a couple of years ago, you wrote an article that got quite a bit of traction, and it was called Jen Hatmaker and the Power of Deconversion Stories. It was a powerful article uh, that I think really helped connect the dots for a lot of people. Uh, it really hit home for me. I, I think people, other people who are watching their friends go down this path and kind of getting swept up in this movement, it gave them language. It gave them points to look at and say, oh, this is what's happening. And so in a moment, we're going to go through your new book. We're going to talk about the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. But to lay the foundation for that, I'd like to talk about this article. And I'm going to read a quote from it because this is so powerful. It's You said this, uh, it's also due to the fact that many of those who deconvert have realized a newfound calling to share their testimony with as many people as possible, rather than just quietly leaving their old beliefs and moving on to new ones, something that would have been more common in prior generations. So a new guard seems to have made it their life's ambition to evangelize the found. That is such a profound point. This is a very evangelistic movement. They're not just satisfied to to deconvert themselves, they, they really want to get converts from the evangelical church into their new way of thinking, which really isn't so new, as you point out in your book and in your articles. And so in, in the article, you identify a playbook, 
And essentially, that's, that's the playbook of how to deconvert. So I, I'd love to talk a little bit about the article. First of all, you sort of centered it around Jen Hatmaker and her shift on same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships. Uh, so, so what was it about that, that that sort of just got you in the place where you're like, I, I need to write about this? Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, as, as the quote indicated there, Jen Hatmaker is just one of many people that have sort of followed this path. And I've been observing this happening over the last months and even years in our culture. And and there really is, I think, a shift that's taken place. And the shift is is not, by the way, people deconverting. That, that's always been true in the history of Christianity. There's people that you think are Christians, that they may think they're Christians, and they leave the faith either entirely or for another version of it. And that's that's a little bit of what's happening here. Um, but that's not what's new. What's new is the is the newfound opportunity in our in our modern world to to reach out to as many people as possible with your deconversion story, and that's that's unprecedented. Mm. And I think there's a couple reasons it's changing. One is technology. I mean, obviously now you can have your own blog and tell your own story and reach your own masses however you want to do it. And in, in, in prior generations, that just wasn't available. But the other thing is a newfound confidence. This is the thing I think that's most interesting is that. Now, you know, in years gone by, someone would deconvert and they'd feel maybe a little sheepish about it and just kind of want to move on with their lives and wouldn't really make a big fuss. Now, I think there's a sense in which people feel like they vindicate themselves and their decision if they can take as many people with them as they can. So there's a, there's a much more loud, aggressive version of this where you feel like you have to go on the speaking circuit now and sort of, uh, you know, recruit as many people to your side as you can. Yeah. And, and the reason I think Jen Hatmaker was a good a good uh, place to begin was because she has a significant following and she is sort of on the pathway of recruiting as many people as she can to her new version of the faith. And um, in fact, arguably she's even a little more dangerous than some just by virtue of the fact that she still at least claims the name of Christ and claims a version of Christianity where some people just sort of throw the whole thing out and just admit they're not a Christian at all. So that, that's a little bit of why I started with her. And I want to talk through a few of these points because, as you mentioned, these deconversion stories are so popular. Entire podcasts and blogs and online hubs are devoted to giving people the opportunity to tell these types of stories. And and this is the playbook for deconversion. So step one is to recount the negatives of your fundamentalist past. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, well, I mean, the first step in, in any deconversion story is to say, hey, I was once one, one of you people. Um, that's where it began. So you sort of flash your your, your evangelical credentials. I went to a, mm. uh, you know, a evangelical Bible college, or I was at this denomination, or I was this or that. And so you sort of show I was one of the the inside, and, and, and that gives you some level of, of credibility. You, you know, you're not just an outsider critiquing the faith. You're, mm. you're a former insider who was critiquing the faith. And so you always start there and say, you know, I was once like you, but then as I as I lived in my church or my denomination or what have you, I saw all the all the failings of it. So you sort of list off all the things that were were bad about your former way of life. So that's that's always the beginning of most of these stories. Yeah, and particularly with Jen Hatmaker, she cites her Southern Baptist raising and going to a Southern Baptist college. And yep. I, I remember when I first heard her story about her deconversion. I was a little bit surprised because I was raised in evangelicalism as well, but it wasn't Southern Baptist. And I'm in a, I'm certain she does not speak for all Southern Baptists, of course, with that. But she would say, you know, nobody was allowed to ask questions. Nobody was allowed to press hard on their faith. And I remember being a little puzzled by that because uh, in the particular 
denomination I grew up in, I always felt welcome to ask questions and press on things and ask, well, why do we believe this? Why, why do we think this is true? So that was a little puzzling to me, but I can see for people who might have been raised in that manner where they weren't allowed to ask questions, they might think, oh, I have that in common with her. And then they're going to keep going with her on that journey, which leads us to step two, position yourself as the offended party who bravely fought the establishment. We see this all the time, don't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is this is a classic. So, you know, when you, when you deconvert, you know, you want to say, look, you know, I, I, I'm, I was liberated and now I'm out to liberate other people. And, you know, I was I'm now out to fight this this juggernaut of evangelicalism. And so you position yourself as a, as the sort of, uh, you know, weaker party, so to speak. And, you know, you're, you're fighting this big, uh, heavy handed establishment that wants to keep you down and sort of oppress you. And you're, 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 you're smart enough and, and brave enough to stand up for yourself. And so you're, you're sort of position yourself as the freedom fighter. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is a common theme and, and this isn't true just of Jen Hatmaker. Others have, have sort of, you know, positioned themselves as, you know, I was courageous enough to stand up to, you know, language like that, stand up to, you know, this, this uh, sort of mean spirited, uh, Christianity that I was fighting against. Now, now, you know, we could always pause at some of these, uh, junctures and acknowledge that, there's always an element of truth in these sure. conversion, these deconversion stories. I mean, there are certain wings of, of the Christian world that are very fundamentalistic and don't allow for questions, and there are certain wings of the church that can be very cruel and heartless to people, and 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 that happens. And so you you have to acknowledge that. But of course, that's the whole point. The whole point is is you can't take one experience and, and then sort of blanket statement Christianity with it. Um, and that I think is exactly the the, the problem with 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 the with the whole playbook. That's a good point, because I think when this whole progressive movement started, maybe with the emergent church in the late 90s and early 2000s, there were some legitimate critiques they were bringing in, maybe of the way that our Christianity was being practiced or lived out. And and it's interesting where in your step two, positioning yourself as the offended party who bravely fought the establishment, the, the example that comes to my mind is when I read Brian McLaren's book, A Generous Orthodoxy, the, the book begins with this like disclaimer, like don't read this book. The essence of it was like, don't read this book unless you just want your mind to be blown. You know, you're never going to be able to go back from this. <laughs> and I remember even just being put off by reading that before I even got into the meat of it, because you're positioning yourself even from the start as this kind of brave soul crying out in the wilderness and, and it was just a little off-putting. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, there's, a, there's a provocative trend to the movement that, that is prone to dramatic statements and, and, and I think, to some extent, overstating uh, yeah. the concerns they have. It would be much, much more balanced to say the church I was in, although not representative of Christianity, did these things. Okay, fair enough. That could be true. Um, but, you know, sort of sweeping away an entire his, history of, of, of Christianity under that heading just doesn't work. And so step three, portray your opponents as overly dogmatic while you are just a seeker. This is a huge one. Oh, yeah. We see this all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the remarkable positioning here in the, in the playbook is that the, the person who's the deconverted person is the person who's, who's, who positions themselves as not dogmatic, not certain, in fact, fundamentally uncertain. And they'll use a lot of language like on a journey and I'm just a seeker, I'm just pursuing the truth. And it's those you know, dogmatic fundamentalists that are always making absolute statements. And if we could just stop with our certainty, then, then everything would be well and we'd all love each other and get along. 
Okay. Right. Front, front, on, on a front level, that sounds pretty good. And, and, you know, certainly you can present yourself as the seeker and everybody else is dogmatic and that, 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 that's a good, good tactic. The problem, of course, as I point out in my article is that that only works until you start smuggling your own certainty in through the back door. And that's, that's what certainly all these folks do. They, they claim on the one hand, well, you know, I'm, I'm the uncertain one and everybody else is certain, but yet they're, they seem quite certain about a great many things. In fact, so certain was Jen Hatmaker about the sexuality issue. She was willing to abandon her entire former way of life and her whole theological system, absolutely convinced that she had been formally wrong and now is right, but yet claims to be uncertain about everything. So I don't understand that. I think it's yeah. a bit of a, of a rhetorical sleight of hand. And I think the honest path would say, I changed my view and now I think I'm right about my view now. That would be the better way to go, but that's not the way they do it. I agree. And as I began to study the movement and read all their books and, and blogs and listen to the podcast, that, that is something I noticed more than anything is that there's this veneer of, we're just asking questions, but there, there is this absolute dogmatic element to it. Like they are very united and very dogmatic that Christians are, have been wrong about the atonement for the, pretty much the history of Christianity. They're very sure that we're reading the Bible wrong. They're very sure that we've got the gospel wrong. So I, I want to read another quote from your article here because it's so relevant. This was referring to Jen Hatmaker in this podcast she recorded with Pete Enns. And my listeners should be familiar with both Pete Enns and Jen Hatmaker as, as we've talked a bit about what they believe and what they're claiming. So here's what you wrote. You said, while claiming to be non-judgmental, she declares the fruit of those who espouse traditional marriage as rotten. And that is, and she has done that more than just on that one podcast. That is something she has continued to claim and repeat. And you said, despite her insistence that the Bible should be read without certainty, she offers dogmatic claims about what it teaches. While claiming her views are due to a deep study of scripture, she offers some simplistic and even irresponsible explanations for the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality while disregarding 2,000 years of Christian history. And that's just a, a really important point because there really is like this dogmatic thing that the fruit from that tree is rotten. And it's, it's a very, it's, it's an objective truth claim that she is making that she is not at all uncertain about. Step four is insister new theology is driven by the Bible and is not a rejection of it. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is a, this is a part of the playbook that's particularly true for sort of a Jen Hatmaker and a, and a Pete Enns and even a Rob Bell to some extent. Um, this, this, this pertains to those who are sort of halfway deconversionists. And what I mean by that is they're not repudiating Jesus entirely. They're not repudiating Christianity entirely. They just want you to adopt a new version of it, which really just means their version of it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the way they get there is by insisting that, hey, I'm not, I'm not ditching Jesus and I'm not ditching the Bible. It's just that, that he's been misunderstood and the Bible's been misunderstood. And now I finally would understand it correctly for the first time in, in 2,000 years, which, of course, you know, even— on the surface of it, when you hear that, and you think, wow, maybe I ought to be a little skeptical of that if someone's coming along and saying something entirely <laughs> new after 2,000 years. But hey, leaving that aside for the moment, the, the fact of the matter is that they want you to think they're still on Jesus' side and the Bible's side. So, And they know there's a reason for that strategy. If they sort of kick the Bible to the curb and Jesus to the curb, they're going to lose a lot of their followers. And, and this is one of the tactics I think is fascinating. That, so rather than just simply being honest and saying Jesus was wrong— which would be the sort of more courageous move here. They, they, they want to claim Jesus for their view. And so now they have to twist up what he says and twist up what Paul says he says and so on to get there. And I, I just wish there would just be more honesty. Why can't they just say, you know what? I changed my view. When I read the Bible, I think the Bible's wrong. I think Jesus is wrong. 
I think Jesus is wrong about marriage. I think Jesus is wrong about a great many things, and, and at least you're owning it. But trying to make him be on your team just doesn't work. I think it's intellectually dishonest. Yeah, it's kind of like ordering a steak in a restaurant, and they bring you the plate of steak, and then the person next to you takes the steak away and puts a sandwich on the plate and says, hey, there's your steak. And you're like, well, that's not a steak. You just, you just replaced it with something else. You can't still call it a steak. And so it's kind of like that's what they're doing with Christianity. They're basically completely redefining it, changing everything about what it has historically meant, what has historically defined Christianity, what the just the core doctrines of Christianity are, changing all of that, but yet calling it still Christianity. And so, yeah, by the way, that's a that's a longstanding pattern in, in liberal and progressive Christianity. Um, and I, I know I'm probably jumping ahead here to our other part of the conversation with my book, but Machen pointed this out and others have pointed out since, which is one of the ways that progressive Christianity makes sort of headway is that they retain certain uh, language. They, they retain certain uh, way of speaking, but just empty it of its former meaning and fill it up with a new meaning. So you can still talk about salvation by faith. You can still talk about, you know, believing in Jesus. You can still talk about the truth of the Bible. But what you mean by those things is not remotely close to what Christians have historically meant by them. And again, right. you know, there's a reason they do that. They want to retain the nomenclature so that they don't alienate all the people who are who are historic Christians. And then if they alienate them, they can't persuade them anymore. So it's, again, a bit of a sleight of hand. You you keep the language, but empty of them the meaning. And that's that's a tricky thing to spot. Yeah, and we see that with cults as well. We see that with Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, where they yeah. use some of the same terms, but change the meaning. That's right. And then, of course, step five, attack the character of your old group and uplift the character of your new group. Yeah, and we hinted at this a moment ago is, um, you know, so now you sort of enter into moral claims and character claims um, that, that, that my old group was, was, was effectively a bad group, and now I'm in the good group. Um, and for Hatmaker, she, she kind of took the gloves off here, um, pretty mm-hmm. much laying almost every social ill at the feet of people who believe in traditional marriage. So now, you know, if you believe in traditional marriage, you're responsible for suicides of, right. and the homosexual community. You're, you're, you're responsible for homelessness. You're responsible for all kinds of things. And it's just a staggering claim. And, and again, you made the point a minute ago, and I'll make it again here, for, for any group that claims to be not dogmatic and to claims to be sort of morally neutral, that's that's a stunning move because there's no moral neutrality there. That's that's as dogmatic as you get and, and, and fairly condemning. Um, yes. So if you know, you're claiming that you're not the judgmental party, I'm like, I'm not sure how you could say you're not the judgmental party after some paragraphs like that. I agree. And this was sort of illustrated in a debate that Sean McDowell had with Matthew Vines. Uh, they've, they've had a couple of conversations publicly and in one of them, Matthew was basically making the claim that just because Sean believes that traditional marriage or biblical morality is is right, that that's harmful for you to even hold that belief. And so uh, that that is the very definition of intolerance, you know, because tolerance would say, I disagree with you, but I respect your right to say your opinion and we can debate those things in the public square. But intolerance would be to say, you don't even have the right to think what you're thinking. No, that's right. And so for, for in these deconversion stories, for those, you know, some people deconvert out of Christianity and, and into some kind of agnosticism or atheism. But then for others, they will uh, reconstruct or reconvert into some kind of a faith. It, it almost never looks like the faith they began with or, or even like historic Christianity. But for those who want to retain the title Christian, they want to hang on to uh, whatever version of Jesus they think is true, they're calling themselves progressive Christians. So this is a very organized movement. It's a, 
uh, a movement that's sort of the same thing that happened with all the mainline denominations back when the, the liberal theology came in, when Mason was writing and, and all of that. But this this is now they're trying to come back into the evangelical church and, and pull evangelicals into it. And so uh, this, this movement, like we were just mentioning, really does have dogmatic claims because when I first started writing about it, I would, I would say basically like, they're not united around a creed. There's not like a, a doctrinal statement for progressive Christians. It's really more about what they're walking away from. It's more about what they do rather than what they believe. But then as I began to research it more, some things started to emerge that really are dogmatic points that you would have to affirm to be in with this group. And, and that's why I love that you called it the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. We'll be back in just a moment to talk more with Dr. Michael Kruger about the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. And if it isn't obvious by now, now more than ever, society needs Christians who can confidently speak truth and love. Do you know how to defend your faith? Do you know how to help people who God has brought into your circle of influence by answering their questions? Olivet Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma and Biola University are partnering this February 28th and 29th to bring you reasonable faith in an uncertain world. Hear from leading apologists like J.P. Moreland, Craig Hazen, Clay Jones, and yours truly as I speak on this topic on progressive Christianity. How can we answer these claims? How can we recognize these ideas when they come into our small groups and our churches? Register today at Apologetics apologeticsevents.com. And hey, I've got a code that will get you $5 off your admission. And that code is B-O-T-R Tulsa. That's Biola on the Road Tulsa. B-O-T-R Tulsa for $5 off your admission. Hope to see you there. So so let's let's get into the book here because this is newly available. And it's just a really great, helpful resource. It's not, it's not a super long read. Uh, someone can, can read it fairly quickly. But these are the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. So what inspired this? Where did this idea come from? Yeah, so I have a, uh, just a good friend of mine who um, is witnessing to his, his mother. And his mother is a, is a liberal Christian. And in the middle of, of witnessing to his mother, his mother sent uh, uh, my friend a, a list of ten beliefs that that, that she, she holds to written by Richard Rohr, um, who's mm-hmm. of course a well-known progressive thinker. Yeah. Um, and he sent these to me and said, what, you know, how would you respond to these? And so I thought to myself, huh, th- these are, these are 10 really f- sort of fitting statements. Um, and I, that, that embody liberal Christianity and I should probably start working on a response. So that's eventually what ended up being the book. Um, but then I discovered, a, a that, 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 that Rohr actually got them from a book by Philip Gulley. Um, and so, you know, the, my, my book's a little bit of a response to both of them, but Goley's book goes into more detail, but it really is sort of the, the code of liberal Christianity or what I call progressive Christianity. It's their 10 commandments and anybody who wants to know how to spot it, these are, these are, this is a great place to start. I hope. Well, let's talk through the points then. So, so the first commandment of progressive Christianity is Jesus is a model for living more than an object for worship. Let's talk about that. What does that mean? Yeah, this is number one for a reason. Um, in fact, Machen, this is one of the classics for Machen, is that the sort of if you're trying to sniff out uh, a progressive Christian, and this is the place you begin, is Jesus primarily someone you worship as God, or is it someone you, you, you mainly emula- emulate so you can live a good moral life? 
And you'll find out that, you know, people are at different points on the continuum, but the progressive movement is far on the continuum towards looking at Jesus primarily as a moral example, if not exclusively as a moral example. So Jesus is not divine. He's not God. You don't bow down and worship him. He's just kind of like a Gandhi figure that lived a great life. And if you want to live a great life and have a meaningful existence, and there's no better example than Jesus. So it's a, it's a form of moralism. And this is fundamentally what, what I point out in the book is that at numerous points along the way, when you start pulling on the thread, you realize it always leads you back to moralism again, which is the, the essence of progressive Christianity. And that the, the highest end is to be a good person. Uh, it's the way you, in effect, save yourself, assuming they even believe that you can be saved at all or that there's a need to be saved. But there is an, a sense in which all of life comes down to that. Um, and so this is just a, a, a way to sort of get you back to moralism. Now, of course, the problems with that are manifold. One is that Jesus doesn't let you do that if you listen to his own teachings, right? He makes it plain that he's not just a good moral teacher, but that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so anybody who reads the Gospels with an honest eye for what Jesus is claiming will qu- quickly realize that Jesus never left us the option to consider him just a, a good moral teacher. But you either accept him as Lord or you reject him as Lord, but th- there's no sort of third way. Exactly. And and I think it would be good to bring up here that in progressive Christianity, what they believe about Jesus can exist on a bit of a spectrum. So a, a lot of progressive Christian leaders will say Jesus is God. Rachel Held Evans made that claim and, and others. But I've heard progressive Christian pastors give sermons. In fact, one in particular that I'm thinking of, this pastor basically made the point, and he was following Richard Rohr on this, saying that Jesus was just like a highly evolved human. And and he compared him with Gandhi, that Gandhi was also this kind of human. There's always that comparison with Gandhi. He was the one who realized the potential of humanity. He was the one who grabbed hold of that Christ consciousness and became an example to follow in that regard. And again, Richard has language like that all over the place. But the tricky thing is that you're probably not going to find a lot of progressive Christian leaders who, who would actually say, Jesus is not God, because they know that would discredit them with Christians, and a lot of Christians would stop listening to them. So a lot of times, these kind of claims take place on a more implicit level. For example, with Richard Rohr, he doesn't, I haven't been able to find anywhere where he rejects outright the deity of Jesus, but he hints at it by saying things like, Jesus never asked to be worshiped. And uh, just today I was looking at a blog post from him that was adapted from his book on St. Francis. And the blog post is called, Imitating Jesus is More Important Than Worshiping Jesus. Uh, yeah, there it is again. Yeah, so, so we're not making this up. Like This is being taught if not explicitly, it's being taught implicitly and has strong implications for what we think about the deity of Jesus. Often we see uh, progressive Christians who might not be so far on the spectrum who wouldn't say Jesus isn't God, but functionally and theologically, the implications they're sneaking in could lead someone to make that kind of a conclusion. And it does end in moralism. And so I want to read a quote from your chapter on this. You said, here is where we come to the most foundational problem with this first tenet. By removing the person of Jesus from the equation as an object of worship, it essentially makes Christianity a religion of moralism. What matters most, we are told, is not doctrine or theology, but behavior, deeds over creeds. And that's such a great point, because it really is deeds over creeds, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, that language is used all the time in 
progressive liberal churches. And I mean, you're right. I mean, not everybody comes out and blatantly rejects the divinity of Jesus. They, as you put it, they functionally reject it. Um, and, and what their, their aversion here isn't even just to the divinity of Jesus, although it is. Their aversion here is to the is to the idea of of, of, a, of a Jesus that has to die for their sins, exactly. uh, a, a, a Jesus that has to pay for the uh, sins they've committed. And so, once you go down that path, and suddenly there's a standard you've broken and that you've got to own up to, and that you need a savior from, and you know they don't want anything to do with that. So even if they retain some shadow of divinity, they're certainly not going to admit that Jesus did anything to pay for your sins. So what has Jesus left that? Well, just a moral example again. He's not. He's not so much a savior that saves you from your sins. He's just someone who lived a good life, whether he's God or not. We'll leave in the shadows. Uh, but 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 he lived a good life, and we should try to you know live our life like him. Yeah. Now, of course, one of the things that I point out in the chapter is that if Jesus isn't God, and I, and I will say this, Goli comes pretty darn close to saying he's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, that's a conversation for another day. But uh, if he's not God, then why should I care at all what Jesus says? This is the the, the thing at all. Like why why is his opinion better than anyone else's? Well, right. it's not. You know, why, why privilege his opinion over any other opinion? Right. Um, and that's never answered curiously. Um, and I think that, that that also would require an answer. Well, and this leads us right into the second commandment of progressive Christianity, because we've already kind of even hinted at it here. But affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. This is this is a huge one. Let's let's talk about this. How is how is this? How do we see this play out? Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Yeah, this is this is a great example. This this section, this chapter is a great example of of what I called the half truths of of progressive Christianity. One of the reasons progressive Christianity is appealing to people because it's partly right. Mm. Um, and so when when people read a chapter like this, they they may be reacting to to certain versions of Christianity that, that that only speak negatively and never speak positively. So the only message you ever get is that you're a sinner, and there's never any other sense that you get a message of what God can do in you through 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 His power and grace. And so it's it's mainly negative, not positive. Okay, fair enough, and that's 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 a legitimate concern. The problem with with this second point, though, is in a, in a quest to affirm human potential, what what Goli ends up doing and Roar ends up doing is basically denying the reality of sin. And, and it, for them to, to affirm human potential is to, is to sort of not deal with sin, not acknowledge sin in any any realistic way. And so they'll use phrases like brokenness. You'll notice the language here is very well picked. You know, they're not going to talk about human sin because that implies rebellion and that implies a God who cares about rebellion and may do something about it. Rather, mm-hmm. they're going to talk about uh, brokenness and fallenness and, you know, things not working rightly. And you realize very quickly, oh, wait a second here. You know, you're not dealing with anything remotely uh, that indicates that 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 um, that real sins in play. Yeah, and and this is something that again, you know, we talked about the spectrum being some some are more explicit about things. This is something that I have seen explicitly denied in the progressive uh, in the progressive movement. The idea of original sin and that a sin nature was passed down from Adam and Eve. Uh, Brian McLaren denies this outright. Uh, w- uh, William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, denies this outright. This is uh, in fact in. Uh, the only that I know of sort of comprehensive survey of progressive Christianity, which was written by progressive Christians. So it's their words. Uh, they outright deny or the idea of original sin. And often it's replaced with original blessing, which was a book that was written by a guy in Matthew Fox. They follow him on this, that really it wasn't sin that separated humans from God in the Garden of Eden, if they would even believe that was a, a real historical story. Either way, the meaning of it in their minds would be it wasn't sin that separated us. 
it was our shame. It was Richard Rohr teaches this as well. It, it was our realization that we weren't beloved or that we weren't worth being loved that brought the separation. And so all we need to do is basically realize our potential. And then once you come to that place of enlightenment, that will reunite you because really you were never separated. That's what you have to realize. And so this is something that I've seen across the board that progressives will deny. And you made this point in this chapter you said that Goli argues we should stop viewing ourselves as wretched, wretched sinners deserving of damnation, even lamenting hymns like Amazing Grace. This is something I've seen over and over again in the progressive church that I was in, uh, where my faith was challenged. They, they actually ended up changing the words to Amazing Grace and taking that word wretch out of it, you know? And, and I've actually seen a lot of uh, progressive worship, worship services where they'll take those old hymns and change words to make it fit their, their new paradigm because they don't want to see us as sinners who are, whose sin separates us from God. It's really just us. It's our, our lack of realizing how amazing we are really that, that is separating us in our own minds. So it's like, we weren't really separated. We just have to realize we're not separated. And so this is something that's real explicit. That's right. And, and, and here's where you realize how, how right Machen was when he said that that liberal Christianity is not Christianity at all. It's a tire, an entirely different religion. Yes. And that's what, you're, that's what you have here. You still have Jesus. You still have things that he did and said, but you don't have Christianity in any recognizable sense. Because as soon as you deny original sin, then, then you have to come up with another reason why Jesus died on the cross. It can't be to pay for sin. It's right. something else. And so right. now, now you have a, a cross, but you have a cross that's not doing anything that historically Christians have understood it to do. And what are you left with? Well, you're left with some, again, a moralistic faith where you just, you're the whole, the whole point is just to be a good person and try to live an authentic life like Jesus did. And so it completely guts Christianity of anything that makes it, makes it Christianity. Exactly. And so this brings us to the third commandment of progressive Christianity, which is the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. And so when they're talking about the work of reconciliation, they're not necessarily talking about reconcil reconciling sinners to a holy God, but uh, no. they, they, they mean that in an entirely different way. So talk to us about what that means. The work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. Yeah, this is a, you know, you have to almost read Gully's chapter to fully get what he's trying to, 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 to target here. But he's talking about how you repair broken or strange human relationships. Okay, fair enough. And his big point is you, you, you repair them by stopping. By, by, by stopping your condemnations. If you just stop being so judgmental, then you're going to find out that you, you, you're now living in harmony with everybody. Um, and there's a sense in which now you finally can, can be reconciled to one another. Um, and again, there's a certain level of truth in this chapter. I mean, the Bible does acknowledge that we should be reconciled to one another. It, it is interesting. This is, this is a little bit of a replacement from the prior chapter, right? So if if the issue is not reconciling God to man, well, what, what is the Bible interested in doing? Well, reconciling man to man, right? And so what you realize in the chapter is, is that Goli is interested in just horizontal relationships, not vertical ones. Um, and in order to get horizontal relationships back on track, his big point is, well, stop judging each other. Stop making either or statements. Stop speaking in black and whites. Um, right. So this, this, the way you can boil down this chapter is it, it basically is the classic liberal stop judging me kind of kind of line. You know, it's the, it's the one verse in the Bible everybody knows for some reason, which is the do not judge passage. Yeah. Um, they may, ne may, may never have read anything else in all of scripture, but somehow they know that, you know, right, right. Uh, even though they don't really know the, the context in which it was delivered in the Sermon on the Mount. So yes, it's, it's basically stop telling people they're wrong. And 
And of course, there's a rich irony to that statement because isn't the whole chapter saying that it's wrong to go around telling people they're wrong? So I'm like, you just violated the very rule your chapter was laying out, which is, of course, the very incoherence of, of, of liberal Christianity. Well, exactly. And this is something Richard Rohr refers to as dualistic thinking. It's that either or type thinking that he says Jesus didn't think in that way. And, you know, once you get past a certain level uh, or a certain age in your life, you will stop thinking in the either or terms. But what's so ironic about that and self-refuting about it is that, well, first of all, Richard Rohr thinks you either think in those terms or you don't, which, you know, it always bottoms back out into either or. But he also would would tell you you're absolutely wrong about believing that God required the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and that God has any wrath for sin or any of that. So you either believe that or you have this more enlightened view that he has. So it's even just logically it fails because you can't, if there's objective truth in the world, you can't avoid either or two plus two equals four or it doesn't. And that's why a lot of these ideas just fail logically. But uh, I want to go ahead and read a quote from you from this chapter chapter. You say, we live in a world that insists more than ever that we should not judge, but we also live in a world that is one of the most angry and judgmental in generations. Like never before, people feel free to express often quite vigorously their moral outrage at just about any grievance, as those active on social media can attest. I'm sure we all can. And you say, yet they remain seemingly unaware of how this behavior fails to square with their professed commitment to not judging. Just a great point. It sort of bottoms out in, in a self-refuting type of, of fallacy. Yeah. I mean, if someone's kind of saying, Hey, stop being so judgmental and they're doing it when they're wagging their finger at you, it's a little hard to take it seriously. Um, this is, this goes back again to the intellectual honesty question, rather than trying to position yourself as not going around making judgments and just your enemy is, which is what they're trying to show. Why can't they just admit, of course, I'm making judgments about right and wrong. And so are you, we both are, let's see who's right. And let's see who's wrong with the, with a vigorous debate over it. But what's, that's not what's happening here. There's not a real attempt to figure out who's right and wrong. Rather, they want to just clear the deck by saying no one should go around saying whether someone's right or wrong. But, of course, as you pointed out, and as I pointed out in this chapter, as soon as you say you shouldn't go around saying something, you are declaring something to be right or wrong. And so it is in, in, incoherent and utterly self-refuting. It's sawing off the ranch you're sitting on. And what's perplexing about it is just the, the, the inability for that to be seen. I still can't figure out why progressive Christians cannot see that they're violating their own their own rules. You know, I guess the rules are selectively applied. They apply to other people, but maybe maybe just not to them. Yeah. So commandment number four says gracious behavior is more important than right belief. And I'll say that again, and then we'll, we can comment on this. The fourth commandment of progressive Christianity is gracious behavior is more important than right belief. What does that mean? Yeah, well, you know, at, at first glance, it's a little little confusing. What does that exactly flash out to? But the essence of this chapter is dealing with, uh, you know, Gully and, and Rohr want to say the, the, the real problem in churches today is, is people being concerned about good theology. If they would stop worrying about being right and stop worrying about getting their doctrine so precise, well, then we could all just get on with loving each other and, and have a peaceful church. And so the, the real culprits are those those, those people who care about doctrine and theology. Mm. Um, and so it's, de- it's definitely a, a, in, in the bullseye, in the, in, the, in the crosshairs, is anybody who's doctrinally concerned uh, and are concerned about you know, theological orthodoxy. Yeah. And so they're saying, hey, if you're concerned with theological orthodoxy, you're, you're just a Pharisee. Didn't, didn't you read in the Gospels, basically, the argument goes that Jesus is always condemning the Pharisees for caring about doctrine and 
If you care about doctrine, you're just a Pharisee, so stop being a Pharisee. Now, now again, at first glance, there's, there's, there's a sense here in which there's some partial truth, and, and the partial truth is good theology is not the only thing we care about. Obviously, in the Christian faith, we care about other things, and we also would acknowledge that people can hold right beliefs in wrong ways, right? They can be mm. correct doctrinally, and they can hold those beliefs in a very uncharitable, ungracious, and even mean-spirited way. And so, fair enough, those are, those are valid points. But of course, I, I push back on this, and I say, is good theology really the problem? Is that really where the nature of the problem lies? And, and for that matter, was that really the Pharisees' problem? Is, 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 is Jesus' big complaint against the Pharisees that they cared about theology? No, that wasn't his big complaint. His big complaint is they were just had bad theology, not that, they right. did, not that they cared too much about it. So Jesus spent a lot of time theologizing with the Pharisees, not so much saying, stop caring about doctrine, but your doctrine's wrong, basically, is what Jesus was arguing. And so actually, good doctrine— Good theology could solve those pharisaical problems. And so, you know, again, it's a bit overly simplistic. We're talking with Dr. Michael Kruger about his new book, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. And we'll be right back into that conversation in just a moment. But if you're a Christian parent, you might be listening to this thinking, what am I going to do? My kids are growing up with all of these conflicting ideas in culture and even conflicting ideas in the church. And I just want to encourage you that Impact 360 is a ministry that exists to help you to equip the next generation to live out their Christian worldview in that kind of crazy culture that seems to have lost its mind. So Impact 360 has a series of summer experiences for students. I will be at both the Propel experience and the Immersion experience this summer. Please consider sending your student to this amazing time of leadership training, theological training, apologetics training. And I just would love to get to know your student at Impact 360 this year. You can go to impact360.org for more information. And for me, that was a standout point that you made in this book when you talked about the Pharisees. And it was sort of one of those aha moments. When I read this, I, I highlighted it and I, I've read it to some people and I've shared it on Facebook. It's such a great point. So I want to read this from your book because I think a lot of Christians can relate with maybe trying to bring some truth to someone that is of a doctrinal nature and then they get called a Pharisee or a heresy hunter or a doctrinal purist or some some kind of a phrase like that. But you made such a good point about what the Pharisees were really all about. And so here's a quote from your chapter four of the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. You say, Jesus never said the problem with the Pharisees is that they are too concerned with orthodoxy. The problem with the Pharisees was legalism, which you define as putting man-made laws ahead of God's, and hypocrisy, which is saying one thing and doing another. So So the main problem with the Pharisees was legalism and hypocrisy. And you go on to say, and often the two went together. It wasn't that they cared too much about good theology, but they that they cared too little. Their theology was a mess. It glorified man. It twisted God's own priorities and selectively followed God's law. This raises an important point. Teaching people good theology is not the problem, but the solution. So I'm going to say that again. Teaching people good theology is not the problem, but the solution. And I have found that to be true in my own life, in my own reconstruction 
when I would affirm doctrinal points, they weren't just intellectual intellectual propositions. These weren't just things I had to check a box and say, okay, I believe this, therefore I'm a Christian. These were life and death truths about who God is, how he is in the world, how he has revealed himself. And, and they had direct gospel implications. And doing theology right will inform the way you behave toward other people. So doctrine and and behavior are not at odds with each other. They're not in opposition. No, they're not. And and one of the one of the points I make actually, and people probably don't think of it this way, is that good theology actually liberates you. Mm. It doesn't oppress you. So would you call yourself a liberal theologian then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What what I'll tell you what oppresses people is man-made laws that hang over their head. God's laws are not oppressive. Man-made laws are oppressive. And I tell people, I was like, if you think God's rules are tyranny, try living under man's rules. Yeah. Uh, God's rules are good, righteous, and true because you have a good, righteous uh, Lord that's given them to you. It's man's rules you want to avoid. Um, and so good theology is, is, is actually the cure for pharisaical thinking, not, not the cause of it. Very good. Um, it's actually going to liberate people from man-made laws running their life. Um, and, and here's the irony. I'm, I'm guessing that most progressive Christians probably were in legalistic churches, yeah. and they're probably fighting against it. The unfortunate and sad reality is, is that the very thing that could cure them of legalism, namely good theology, is the very thing they're, they're, they're throwing out. Mm. Um, and if they can only keep that good theology, they might realize that's actually the cure of the thing they grew up in, yeah. not, not, not throwing it to the curb. That's good. So the fifth commandment of progressive Christianity is inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. This is a big one. We've all heard this. So let's talk a little bit about this. Why do you call this an effective strategy in your book? Oh, yeah, this is so good. I've I got to say this this is one of the the, the classic uh, plays in the, in the deconversion stories, too, which is, you know, I could never I could never get answers to my questions etc. But what you, when you start digging under the, the surface of it, you realize that actually, actually liberal Christians don't want answers. Right. Um, that's the thing they're avoiding. They, 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 they say that the questions are what matter and not the answer. Um, if you're looking for answers, well, that's the problem. You got to stop looking for answers and just live in the questions. You know, you're, you're, you, you stop worrying about the destination and just enjoy the journey kind of uh-huh. kind of idea. Um, and this is this is this is how progressive Christians sort of p- portray themselves as I'm just a, I'm just a seeker. I'm just on a journey. I'm not really, I'm not really trying to be dogmatic here. I'm just, just trying to explore. And it's you, you people that think you have all the answers here that are the real problem. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, once again, this is, this is maybe a, a, a tidbit of truth hidden in there, but as a whole, just a grand, um, uh, I think, misrepresentation of what Christianity is really all about. I agree. And in my experience in the progressive church, when, and when a question was asked, there were really only two possible answers, either the, the answer was, I disbelieve the original historic view of it. Or even better is if you said, I don't know. Anybody who would say, I don't know, they were praised. They were viewed as more enlightened and, and more wise. And I just remember being so frustrated in class because I would be thinking like, everybody's saying things like, why why is everyone so afraid of the questions? And then I, I was feeling like, why are you so afraid of the answers? Because in my experience, when I got away from that class yeah. and I discovered for the first time in my life, apologetics and, and systematic theology, I found an avalanche of answers to all the questions that I had. And so I was always a bit confused about that because in class, like one question would be brought up and then I'd go home and research all week trying to answer it. But by the time we got to class next week, they just moved on to the next thing because it really wasn't about the answer. It was about finding the next question. And to me, it's pointless. Yeah, you, re- you get this 
sneaky suspicion. They don't actually really ever want the answer. And that, that was the real objection in the first place is that the church they, they were in might actually have been telling them that there's an answer to right. their questions and they just didn't like it. So wanted to sort of stay in the, in the world of, of, well, who knows? And, and one of the things I point out in this chapter is that that's fundamentally the world's mm. definition of humility. The world's definition of humility is mm. the I don't know posture. And I argue that that's not a good definition of humility. It's certainly not the biblical definition of humility. There's some things you do know, and it would actually be morally yeah. questionable to deny that you know them. Um, and that you ought to say certain things are wrong and certain things are right. You ought to stand up for certain things being true and certain things being false. To shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know, is actually not commendable all the time. Actually, in fact, sometimes yeah. it can be even cowardly to do that. Um, and this is one of the things that, that I think is often missed in, in, in these discussions. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's interesting to think about the way you just worded that because you see that on Twitter a lot, where if you're not speaking out publicly on Twitter about the right causes you know, you, you, you're condemned for that, but yet with almost everything else, you're supposed to take this, well, I don't know type posture, but if you take an, I don't, yeah, which one is it? Yeah. Once like if you yeah. take an, I don't know posture toward yeah. whatever cause you're supposed to be outraged about, that's not acceptable, but in, in matters of theology and what we think about God, it's expected. So that's an interesting kind of inconsistency. Yeah. Well, you realize it's selectively applied. It's, it's, you should be uncertain right. about the things I want you to be uncertain about. Uh, and certain about the things that I want you to be certain about. So you realize it's not actually uh, applied universally. It's applied right. for the person who's, who's making the argument. The sixth commandment of progressive Christianity is this. Encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. You, you touched on this a minute ago, but let's, let's dive a little deeper into this. Encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. Yeah, this is a little bit of the, the topic we did just touch on. And, and one of the things about the Goalie's book and even Richard Rohr's 10 Things is they, they tend to circle back on top of each other a good bit a good bit here and there. But this book is basically an anti-church. This chapter is basically an anti-church chapter, mm. uh, effectively. It's like, look, you don't need institutions. You don't need institutional churches. All, all churches do is try to make you do group think. And the courageous path is to break away from institutions and groups and to be, you know, uh, uh, independent. You should be a spiritual explorer, you should break out and be a pioneer and be on your own and so on. Um, and so it's sort of trying to create this sort of entrepreneurial religion idea in that, you know, if you're, if you're bound to a, a certain church or group, then you're just, you're just, you know, regurgitating back what they taught you and that you should, you should be bigger and smarter than that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it is, um, you know, very much an ecclesiology uh, chapter, but an, an anti-ecclesiology chapter. Yeah. Um, and uh, particularly, Goli goes after this idea that the church would ever enforce any rules or any standards. So it's sort of an anti-church discipline chapter, too. Yeah, and you wrote, uh, the assumption underlying this entire progressive narrative is that religion is about humans finding God rather than about a God who has revealed himself to humans. And so you say, if someone thinks such a thing, you can see why he or she would be irritated with biblical Christianity. If that's the way you're viewing religion, that you could see that for sure. Oh, absolutely. And this is, this. well, here's the thing to point out is it's not just that most non-Christians view religion that way, even Christians view religion that way. Mm which is why, unfortunately, Christians are hesitant about their own claims to know something. Because mm. if all religion is, is us trying to figure God out, then it does sound like a lot of arrogance to say we've figured God out. Yeah. Um, but it's not, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity isn't about us saying we figured God out. It's that God's graciously, graciously revealed himself. And all we're doing is simply saying, here's what God has said about himself and about his son and about salvation. 
Um, and that doesn't have any arrogance about it at all. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think you'll find that even most believers operate under the idea that religion is, is just about our quest, our, our fallible human quest to disco- discover the divine. Right. So uh, the seventh commandment of progressive Christianity is this meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. This is this is a big theme we see in progressive Christianity. Absolutely. Uh, This is a a little bit of a a section where progressive Christians go on sort of the let's just do good deeds sort of speech. Right. Um, We're not here to build the Mm -hmm. church, so to speak. We're here to help people. Um, In fact, if you're if you're worried about building the church, well, you're just an institutional person. You should be more concerned with feeding the hungry and healing the sick and loving your enemy and so on, helping people in need. So what 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 Roar has done here is he's pitted the two things against each other. If you're if you're about the church, well, then you're not caring for the needs of people. Um, it's one or the other. Which is sort of what he says is dualistic yeah. thinking, which yeah. he's, he says you're not supposed to do. Yeah, ironically it is. Yeah, and this leads right into the eighth commandment of progressive Christianity, which is that peacemaking is more important than power. Yes, um, this is a, another anti-institutional move, and you'll you'll see a theme emerging here. And in progressive Christianity, many... Many uh, of the of the claims are trying to push away from the institutional side and more towards the individualistic side. You can see how that serves their view, because the more individualistic you are, the more you can just create your own religion and create your own rules. And so it's sort of a, another uh, anti sort of church authority chapter. And so here's where I make a distinction between authority and authoritarianism. And, you know, Goley complains, and I think rightly so, about authoritarianism in the church. And by the way, that's a real problem. Um, and that's a conversation for another day. There are church leaders and church structures that can be very authoritarian and domineering and oppressive. Sure. And th- that needs to be dealt with in yeah. its own right. The problem is he doesn't, he doesn't distinguish between that and legitimate authority. There is a legitimate place for church authority, uh, which I think, you know, again, it's, it, it gets swept under the rug of the problem and you never find out what it really looks like. It's like judging a system by its abuses rather than what its, its scripture is actually teaching. And because you're right, we have seen a lot of abuses of power and agreed. God needs a clean house with the church to, to right those wrongs. But that doesn't mean that what the Bible teaches about authority is wrong. It just needs to be practiced well in the spirit of, of what the Bible is teaching. Uh, so, so interesting talking about authority, and this always leads us to what your chapter nine is about. The ninth commandment of progressive Christianity is that we should care more about love and less about sex. You always hear this. Why is God like this police officer that cares who we sleep with? And so, so comment on that for a bit. Oh yeah. You, you knew this is where it was going. And, and by the way, this <laughs> should be a classic part of any person spotting progressive Christianity is there's always a payoff in terms of what you're allowed to do or not do, and it's almost always about sex. Um, mm-hmm. It really is remarkable how unoriginal the 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 the, the, the is. Um, it's the same thing every time. Is that when you when all the dust settles, and now that I've gotten rid of all the rules, and I've gotten rid of all the judging, and I've gotten rid of all the institutional authority, now I can just say what I'm really getting to, which is, hey, now you don't have to worry about sexual norms. You can just be all about love and just have sex with who you right. want. Now, of course, this is so massively problematic. I mean, so many false dichotomies there, as if sex equals love, right? So if, you, if, it's, if God just cares about love, love, then you should be able to have sex with whoever you want. Well, that, why does that follow? Just because just God is pro-love doesn't mean that you can just have sex with whomever you want. Sometimes being pro-love means you don't have sex right. with whomever you want. Some, you, you, maybe you're, you're loyal to your spouse as a way of loving right. them. So the idea that the two are opposed to each other is, is, is crazy, but he just sort of throws that in there. Um, and, and one of the things I point out in this chapter is 
the, the whole rhetoric is designed to make you think, really, God has bigger things to worry about than this. You know, he's a laid back sort of guy. Stop being such a prude. Um, it's, it's like the 1960s all over again here in this chapter. And, and I, you know, it, it really is a, a, a bit of a predictable sort of way they uh, lay out their case. But we just need to know as Christians that it, it eventually always comes back to this. And when you remove any meaningful sense of atonement or sin nature, if we if we don't really need to be saved, it's going to affect our eschatology. And in my research, I haven't actually been able to find a meaningful eschatology in the progressive Christian movement. It's just something they, they might speculate on a little bit, but it's really not about that. And this brings us to your 10th commandment of progressive Christianity, that life in this world is more important than the afterlife. And I think that's worded really well. It's not like they're denying that there's an afterlife, but they just don't really want to speculate about it. It's like, we're just, we don't know. It's about the here and now, isn't it? Yeah. And this, this is, you know, a sad place to end because this really is, I think, the discouraging, hopeless version of, of Christianity you get with progressive Christianity is there is no hope beyond this life. Um, and and, and what's, what I will say about this 10th commandment is it, it's, it's a bit more honest Whatever you want to say about Roar and, and, and Gully, here they're just laying it out there. Yep, you're right. We believe that this life matters more than the next. Um, what's crazy yeah. about such a position is it, there, it's hard to find a position more diametrically opposite than Jesus's position than that. Jesus quote, right. repeatedly said, actually, it's the next life that's more, more important than this one. But yet they reverse it entirely. And this is why, you know, we repeated numerous times that this is not Christianity. This is the opposite of Christianity. This is a completely other religion. Um, and it's sad because as soon as you tell people that this is their hope, their hope doesn't go beyond this world. Um, for those who are suffering, for those who are, are dealing with, with loss and difficulties, that's a really, really unfortunate thing to tell them. Moreover, there is a life after this one, and it really does go on forever. And what, 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 what the Tenth Commandment really does is strips the gospel completely from progressive Christianity. There is no hope for salvation and eternal life in this version. Of Christianity, and that's really where really sad, and that that's unfortunately where it takes you when you when you follow the progressive path. Yeah, the and the sad thing too is even the perception, because if you think about, you know, I I do spend a lot of time with my work criticizing the beliefs of progressive Christianity, but essentially it's really not about what we're against; it's about what you give up by going into that movement. You're giving up. Uh, Jesus dealing with your sin. I mean, I know I'm a sinner and I, I want that dealt with. I want that paid for and I want to be right with God, with a holy God. So I think it's really well put when you said this is a sad place to end. But in progressive Christianity, that's what they're giving you, a sad place to end. And for all of us, as we think through these things, it's about, it's not just about what doctrines we think they're getting wrong. It's about what they're giving up for this other worldview, this, as you said, and as I agree with you, is an entirely different religion with a different Jesus and a different God. And so I think that that's just a lot for us to process and think through. I want to encourage all of the listeners out there to, to get this book, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. You can find it on Amazon. I encourage you to go to Dr. Kruger's website, which is canonfodder.com. And you can also put in michaelkruger.com and it'll take you there as well. Great blogs, tons of blog posts on early Christianity, the canon, uh, textual criticism, all kinds of, of interesting things. So check that out. And Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Great to be on. Hope we can do it again. Me too.
you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my post by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. 